Ephesians chapter 4. This is your first Sunday here. We'd like to warmly welcome you to our church. We're glad that you're worshiping with us, and we pray that God will bless you this morning. Uh, and we have been in a sermon series in Ephesians uh, since September, so uh, you're joining us midway through a series in Ephesians as we're slowly but surely plowing our way through this rich book. Uh, so today it's, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. And it says in verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we remember that you sat down on the mountainside and your disciples gathered around you to hear your teaching and that you taught as no man had ever taught, that your words were more than just the reflections of yet another rabbi, but your words came with power and with life, and they transformed the hearers even as they listened. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, we are your disciples this morning, and we once again gather here on the mountainside to listen to what you have to say to us, not what the pastor has to say, but what you, the risen Christ, has to say through your very word. And so we pray this morning that you might teach us. God, we come from so many different places this morning. Some of us need encouragement. Some of us need a, uh, a kick in the pants. Some of us need direction. Some of us need hope. And Lord, you know what each and every soul here needs this morning. And so we gather around you asking that through your word you would speak to our deepest needs of our heart, that we might draw closer to you and learn from you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever served on a committee in the church or been in a Bible study with somebody in the church or just known someone in the church who was so different from you that you just wondered, how in the world is this going to work out? I'm on this committee with this person for three years. We're going to drive each other nuts. Uh, one of you is uh, always dreaming about new things for the ministry and the vision. 
uh, of the ministry. The other one is, is crunching the numbers of the budget to make sure you can pay for what you're already doing. Well, one of you is saying, oh, we need to move faster. We need to take action. Let's stop talking. Let's get something done. And the other one is saying, no, let's slow down, slow down. We need to pray more, more prayer, more prayer. And so the two of you are going in opposite directions. I once uh, worked with somebody who was uh, somewhat different from me, um, and we had to work together. His name was uh, Seth Rogers. Um, <laughs> I know, it's difficult to imagine, but we're actually not totally the same. Um, uh, it, we do get along in a lot of ways. Seth and I, I mean, we really have fun together. My whole staff is just a very fun place to be. We have a great spirit. But Seth and I are different. I know that's hard to imagine. Uh, we have some different giftings and some different personality traits. Uh, I'm a shameless ham, and uh, Seth is more low-key. You probably haven't noticed that, but <laughs> that's how we are. Uh, uh, you know, I am one of these cursed idea guys. You know, don't you hate idea guys? I'm, 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 you know, oh, I got new idea, new idea every week, every minute. Let's do this stuff. Let's try that. Come on, boom, 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 boom. I'm always throwing them out. You don't like my idea? That's okay. It's like the weather in New England. It'll change in a minute, you know? <laughs> And I, I feel like, like uh, Kramer on Seinfeld, who's always popping into Jerry's apartment. I'm always popping into Seth's office like, whoo, you know, like, hey, Seth, sit down. He's like, okay. So you, you need to pray for Seth because he has to work with me. He, he is the one who absorbs most of my impulsive energy, which is, oh, God bless him for that. Seth, on the other hand, he's more linear. He thinks things through in a logical way. He's not given to wild, impulsive decisions. He once told me, and, and uh, this is a quote, that his hero is the Indian chief Sitting Bull. Because <laughs> Sitting Bull didn't speak. Sitting Bull sat and fought before he did something. And so, you know, I'm into, into his office going, oh, Seth, let's do this, let's do that. And he's, he's always trying to make me think about my ideas in a biblical, theological context. I'm like, oh, yeah, Bible theology. Okay, yeah, 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 right. And it slows me down. And, and so it, there's a potential there for the two of us to really not get along with each other. Those differences that we have in the body of Christ, those distinct gifts and personality traits, could be a potential ground for division and disunity in the church. <clears throat> but what I want to see this morning in today's text is that the, the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ are specifically given by Christ for the good of the whole church. Rather than being a source of division, we should celebrate when we find people who are different from us in the church because that means that God has given his gifts out for the upbuilding of the whole. Let me show you what I mean. Look back at our text. Look back at our text. Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're at verse 7. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So if you remember from the last two Sundays in verses 2 through 6, we we're studying the unity of the church. Do you remember that? Two Sundays ago, Ray Pendleton was here, and he talked about how we should strive for unity. And then last Sunday, we looked at verses 4 through 6 at the ground of our unity, which is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. So, so we've been talking about the unity of the church, but now Paul shifts gears a little bit, and he points us toward the diversity of the church. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So there's two uh, truths, I think, in verse 7. The first truth is 
that every member of the body of Christ, every member of the body of Christ, every member has a gifting from God to be used for the good of the body. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus and have been saved through faith in Jesus, you have been given at the moment of your conversion giftings to be used for the good of the body of Christ. Uh, now, what do you mean by giftings? Well, Paul tells us down in verse 11. Check it out down there. It says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. We know from other places in Scripture there are other gifts. There are gifts of service. Some people have a gift of mercy. Some people have a gift of leadership. Some people have a gift of uh, giving financially. And so throughout the New Testament, there are different lists of different gifts given to the body. And Paul here in, in Ephesians 4 is focusing more on the uh, proclaiming gifts. Why does he focus on that? Well, we'll see in a couple weeks. But uh, for now, just note that Christ has given gifts to the body. Everyone in the body of Christ has a gift or gifts to be used for the good of the church. And then the second truth is that the gifts are given sovereignly or freely by Jesus Christ. Look at uh, the end of verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So the gifts are not something that you go get for yourself. It's something that Jesus decides, all right, you're getting this, and you're getting that, and you get this, and you get that. Christ is the one who divvies up the gifts. All right, I'm with you so far. So there's a diversity in the body of Christ given by Christ. And then we hit verses 8 through 10. It's just weird. Look at verse 8. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I think at this point we have to ask an important exegetical question. The question, huh? <laughs> like, I'm with you, Paul. Okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Unity in the body of Christ, verses 2 through 6, gotcha, gotcha. Verse 7, but there's a diversity in the gifts that are given. All right, I'm with you. And then verse 8, woo! What are you? Ascending, descending, people are going up and down. There's captives. What, what is he talking about? And, and I'm trying to think about how this fits in with the whole flow of the passage. Actually, verse 8 is really, really cool. And I'm going to try to explain to you why, why I think it's cool anyway. Verse 8 is a quotation from the Old Testament. In fact, it's interesting. It's the only place in the book of Ephesians where Paul quotes the Old Testament. In some of his other letters, he quotes the Old Testament many times. Uh, but, but here, this is the only place in Ephesians where we have an Old Testament quotation. And it's from Psalm 68. So essentially what Paul's doing is he's given us his idea, which is that there's a diversity of gifts in the church given by Christ, and now he's going to back it up with an Old Testament quote. He's going to prove his point from the Old Testament. So what I want you to do is bookmark Ephesians 4, as we'll come back, and then flip over to Psalm 68 in the Old Testament. And I'm hoping that by studying Psalm 68 just for a minute here, it's going to give us insight on what in the world Paul is talking about. Look at Psalm 68. It's on page 570. 570 if you're using the Pew Bible. Open the Bible right in the middle. You find the Psalms. Psalm uh, 68. Psalm 68, just to give you a little background, is a notoriously difficult psalm to interpret. One of the most difficult psalms in the whole Psalter. Uh, it drives interpreters and uh, theologians crazy. 
One reason is because the Hebrew of the text is uncertain in some places, and it's difficult to know how to translate it. Uh, but from a, a less technical, more theological standpoint, the, the psalm jumps all over the place. It's difficult to put Psalm 68 in one category that will explain the whole thing. It's, it's a hodgepodge of different images and ideas. And so people who study Psalms come to Psalm 68, they're like, I don't know what this is. It's all over the place. It's, it's a very difficult Psalm to categorize and summarize in a nice little box. But if we were going to summarize Psalm 68, perhaps the, the best we could do would be to call it a victory ode a uh, war hymn, a battle hymn. It's a song that was most likely sung in, in the context of war in Israel. Perhaps before the Israelites went out to battle their enemies, they sung this psalm or prayed this psalm. Or maybe as well when they came back victorious from battle, they sung this psalm. So it, it's a very much a battle hymn. And it's about God in, in the Old Testament defeating his enemies, defeating the enemies of Israel. And we know from Israel's history, they fought a lot of battles. God called them to fight battles and to take over the land of Canaan. He gave them the promised land. They had to clear it out via warfare as part of God's judgment on the inhabitants there. Uh, but, but they sang this psalm at some point in the context of war. Look at verse 11. See if we'll make a little sense of this psalm. The Lord announced the word, verse 11, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings and armies flee in haste. And in the camps, men divide the plunder. Even while you sleep among the campfires, the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver, its feathers with shining gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings of the land, it was like snow fallen on Zalmon. So here's the defeat of the hostile kings. And again, throughout Israel's history, from the time they left Egypt and went into the promised land, they are fighting battles. Enemies came up against them, but they trusted in the Lord, and the Lord defeated their enemies. And then, in verses 15 to 18, we have the aftermath of the battle when God returns victorious to Israel. Look at verse 15. The mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? Well, what, don't be jealous, because God is choosing to dwell on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Then verse 17 the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. So now you have the picture of God victorious in battle. He's defeated his enemies. He's come down from Zion into the valley, conquered the hostile forces. And now God is, is going back up to Zion, and he's surrounded by thousands and thousands of his chariots. It's a big military procession. It's like when the soldiers return from war in America and they go down the street in the city and the, the ticker tape flies and everyone cheers for them. It, that's the image. It's the conquering king returning. Then we get verse 18. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord, might dwell there. So there's our text. So, so the idea is of a king returning from battle, He's victorious. He's going back up to Jerusalem uh, because you always go up to Jerusalem in the Bible. He's going back up to uh, Zion and he's victorious and he's receiving the tribute. He's receiving the spoils of war, all the plunder from the defeated enemies. And then what they did in the ancient world was then the king would give out the gifts to his generals and his lieutenants and the people 
in order to honor them for their service. And, and they were given out by the king. So this is sort of the overall image. Now, can you kind of imagine this in the life of Israel? Israel has gone out to fight a battle. They defeated the enemy. And now they're all coming back. There's some captives, some POWs they've taken from the battle. They have all this tribute and plunder that they've stolen from the enemy in, in battle. And now they're going back up to Zion. And at the front of the company are the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence. And here they are marching up, and they're starting to sing this psalm about God returning victorious from battle over his enemies. Now, keep that picture in your mind, and go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and see if it doesn't just take this verse from black and white to color. Bring a a new richness to this verse. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the universe in order to fill the whole universe. Very interesting. So, if this psalm celebrates God's victory over his enemies, Paul is applying it in Ephesians 4 to celebrate the greatest victory ever of God over his enemies. So he's not misapplying the psalm. He's not taking it out of context. He's singing a victory chant over the fact that God has conquered the greatest of all enemies. Just as God in the Old Testament came down to fight the enemies, so Jesus comes down. Interesting that Paul applies an Old Testament psalm about God to Jesus because Paul understood that Jesus was God in human flesh. Jesus comes down. They fight the battle. And who did Jesus defeat? The principalities, the powers, the forces of evil, sin, death, suffering. In fact, um, look at, keep a finger here, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Are you getting fired up about this? I'm excited. I I love this stuff. Interpreting, figuring this stuff out. Ephesians 19, chapter 1, verse 19. It says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, here it is, and seated him at his right hand, there's the ascension, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. So the rulers, the authorities, the powers of evil, that's what those are in Ephesians, they have been hostile against God, But Jesus has come, he's conquered them, and now he's going back up. And he's got captives in his train. He's defeated the enemy. And now he sits on his throne in heaven, and he starts to give out the gifts. He starts to distribute the spoils of war. Now, did you notice, this is interesting, in Psalm 68 it says he received gifts. Did you notice that? In Ephesians it says he gave gifts. And you go, wait a minute, did Paul just mistranslate? Did he misquote that? What's going on here? Well, there's some technical translation issues involved. And what I did in your sermon notes is, on the inside page, I did a little tangent. Did Jesus receive or give gifts? And you can read that some other time. Because it's kind of technical, and I I didn't want to bog the sermon down in just a bunch of technical stuff. But if you're into that, you can read it. But I, I think the main point is that Paul is ultimately showing the fulfillment of Psalm 68. 
Because in the context of ancient warfare, the idea of receiving the booty and the, and the plunder from the enemy was so that you distributed among your people. It was part and parcel of the whole ceremony. And so Paul, understanding that, applies the fulfillment of the psalm. He's talking about how the psalm has been fulfilled. And so his, his translation of Psalm 68 is also an interpretation. It's an interpretive translation. He's showing how it's been fulfilled in Israel. He's not just trying to quote it word from word, but he's trying to show how it's come to fruition. So that the giving of Christ, gift, the giving of gifts to the body of Christ is the fulfillment of this psalm that Christ has been the victor. So anyway, it's, it's interesting how Paul uses that. Remember, Paul didn't walk around with a big Old Testament scroll on his back and open it up and quote word from word when he wrote these things. I mean, he's using his memory, and he's also interpreting theologically. He's trying to show the theological fulfillment of these things. And so he's showing that Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 68, the ultimate fulfillment. So, let's put it all together. Get back on the main path here. Christ has given gifts to the body. And those gifts are the spoils of war from the conquering king. Jesus has defeated all of our enemies, all of our spiritual enemies, Satan, the forces of evil, sin, death, suffering. He's conquered them all, and he's leading them in, as captives. And he ascends to heaven after his resurrection. And then at Pentecost, he pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. And at Pentecost, as he pours out the Holy Spirit, he's giving spiritual gifts to the body of Christ to be used by them. Christ is the victor. So the gifts that you see among the body are not things to be annoyed by. <laughs> when Seth gets, sees me coming into his office and I'm you know, being my impulsive, annoying uh, self, you know, it, it's like this isn't just a, a weird interruption, but Christ has given me certain gifts and he's given Seth certain gifts and he's given you certain gifts that all have to be used together. The gifts in the body are not there to drive us crazy, although they do sometimes. But the differences in the body of Christ are there to build us all up because they're all just parcels of Christ's grace won through his victory on the cross. Does that make sense? So what does this mean for us? Let's get real practical here. Look at your sermon notes real quick. I think this has profound implications for how we understand the life of the body, how we understand ourselves as a church and a congregation. If you look at the front of the sermon notes, it says, Jesus' distribution of grace gifts means, and I can think of at least three applications or three implications of this text. The first thing it means is, number one, we need each other. We need each other. No one Christian has all the gifts. No one Christian has been given all the grace. It's been divided up among the body. Uh, the spoils of war weren't, weren't given in one lump sum to one of the soldiers. They've been divided among all the troops. So that means if we're going to receive the grace that God has to give us, we're going to need each other in this process. I, you, you can't be without me and I can't be without you. We, we need each other in the context of the local church to build each other up. You know, at Christmas time, parents, you see that box is unwrapped and your kid's jumping up and down. Hooray, look what I got for Christmas. And then you see those dreaded three words on the side of the box. Some assembly required. Like, oh, it's one of these. You know that for the next hour, you're going to be trying to read incoherent directions about how to put this dumb toy together. Uh, well, I think on the side of the church, you should say some assembly required. Because there's no one in the body of Christ who's fully assembled. 
for the church to work, for grace to work as Christ wants it to work. We all are different parts of the puzzle that have to be put together to make a whole. Grace has been distributed to each one. And I think this is important because sometimes there are Christians who just don't see the purpose of a local church. Like, you know, why do I need a local church? I have a personal emphasis on personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I have my personal prayer time and my personal Bible study. So why do I need the church? You know, I'm, I'm sort of beyond the church, really. I, I have my own relationship with God. You know, what's the point? In fact, uh, maybe you've known people who've been in a church, but the church is just not good enough, it's not right. So then they break off and they form a house church, and that doesn't really work. And then it just becomes kind of them and their Bible. And, and you know, that's totally an unbiblical pattern. Christ has called us to live in community with one another. Do you remember uh, Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island? Interesting character. Uh, he was, of course, the voice of freedom of conscience. And that's why he went down and started Rhode Island, because he didn't like the rigidity of the Massachusetts Bay Puritans. And he said, I want a, a, a colony where anybody feels welcome to come. Uh, and so he was always dissenting. He was always dissenting. But not only in a political sense, he also dissented in a religious sense. And near the end of his life, he became so frustrated with the local church that he stopped going to church. He said, there's no church that's perfect. There's no church that fits the New Testament pattern. And so I'm not going to go to church until I find one. And he just withdrew with his little Bible. And, and I think there's that tendency to do that, to say, well, the church isn't perfect. The church has all these flaws. And so I'm just going to do my own little thing over here. We call this Lone Ranger Christianity. You've heard that phrase. I got another name for it. Unbiblical Christianity. Disobedient Christianity. Christians need to be in the body of Christ like a fish needs to be in a pool or in a pond. We're made for each other. Here's the ironic thing. Here's the ironic thing. Is that sometimes when people distance themselves from the church, it's because they perceive themselves as mature. This is the ironic thing. Well, you know, I, this church has got all these problems, and I'm really mature, and I can see all the problems in the church. But the ironic thing is that the way we get mature is by all the gifts of the body ministering to the body. I don't want to jump ahead and, and steal the thunder from the next few weeks' sermons, but we're going to see as the text goes on that the whole point of the gifts is so that the gifts used together mature the whole church together. So that if someone claims to be too mature for the church, it's like, by definition, they're not mature. Because we need each other's gifts in the body of Christ to mature us in the body of Christ. It's very interesting. So all that to say, we need each other. I need you and your gifts. You go, oh, what gifts do I have? You know, I don't know. But I need your gifts. Let's find out what your gifts are. And you need my gifts, and we all need his gifts, and... He all needs our gifts. The body of Christ builds itself up. We need each other. Because no lump sum of all the grace was given to any one person. It's been divided up among the body. Jesus Christ is the victorious king who has distributed the grace gifts uh, as he sees fit. That means, first of all, we need each other. Number two, I think a second implication is, let's not be jealous of each other. Let's not envy each other in the church. Let's not look with a jaundiced eye at other Christians who have certain gifts and certain abilities and certain ministries. It doesn't make any sense because the gifts have been given sovereignly by Christ. Envy, of course, is a very ugly thing, whether it's envy between siblings or rivalry between in-laws or conflict and competition between two people in the same office. That kind of unhealthy envy and jealousy is a an ugly thing. It's ugly in the church, too. And it happens in the church. 
we see someone in their ministry, we're like, why can't I have that ministry? Why can't I do that? How come they have that gift and I don't have that gift? How come John gets to lead the praise team? I want to lead the praise team. I, why can't I sing worth a darn? You know, I wish I had those gifts. And, you know, we can easily envy and be jealous of one another. How come I don't get to be an elder? Why is that person the chairman of the committee? You know, and, and we get all these competitive, envious, jealous sort of things. But, but it's assuming that, that the gifts are somehow a reflection of us. And people get insecure and, and they say, well, I want to be like that because they're, they're insecure about themselves or whatever. <laughs> but the point is the gifts have been sovereignly given. They're, they're not a reflection on you. God has just distributed them as he saw fit. So when we come into the body of Christ and see the gifts, and we see someone doing something wonderful, we shouldn't be jealous of them. We should say, thank you, Lord, that you sent that person to minister to me, that you've given that gift to the body to minister to the whole body. Because, again, the gifts are for the whole body to be upbuilt. The gifts are not about me. We have to remember that in our sort of inwardly focused, therapeutic, it's all about me, it's all about my feelings, it's all about my needs kind of society. And we keep getting that message from our society. And then we come to the spiritual gifts and we think, well, this must be about me and my fulfillment. No, no, the gifts are for the body. So it doesn't matter who has what gifts. The point is to use them for the upbuilding of the whole congregation and the whole church. You know, that not only applies to seeing someone else who has a different gift, but I think it sometimes applies to someone who has the same gift. And you can be jealous of someone who has the same gift as you, except in a greater or different measure. I'll tell you, if I ever start feeling cocky about preaching and I ever feel like, that was a good sermon. What? <laughs> I am a gift. <laughs> you know, if, if, if I ever start getting that way, all I have to do to pop my head is just read one ser- sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Just open up one Spurgeon sermon, read it, and I'm like, oh, gee, oh, this is awesome. Well, I'll never preach like that, you know. And I just have to realize that God gives different grace to different people. And it's possible for me, reading Spurgeon's sermons, to become jealous of a dead guy. <laughs> How come he got to preach like that, God? Why did you give me that gift? You know, it's ridiculous. Because the point is the upbuilding of the glory of Christ in his body. And at a certain time, in a certain place, London, England, in that church, in the 19th century, God gave a certain administration of his grace to a preacher named Spurgeon for a specific purpose. He's given me a certain administration of grace in the 21st century in Hingham for a specific purpose at a specific time. He's given you a specific administration of his grace for specific purposes at specific times. So we shouldn't be jealous of each other. We shouldn't be jealous of people who have the same gifts in different capacities. Let's just be thankful whenever we see gifts in the church that God has loved you so much and loved me so much that he sent his grace in spiritual gifts upon people to be used for the whole body. And that leads to the third application. Jesus has rose victorious and he has distributed the spoils of war among his body. That means, first of all, we need each other. Second of all, let's not be jealous and envious of one another. And then the third implication is um, look for synergies. Look for synergies. This is the flip side of number two. If I shouldn't be jealous, then what should I do? Well, I should look for synergies between the gifts. Look for ways the gifts mesh together. Look for complement, uh, complementary giftings. When someone is really driving you crazy in a committee or a ministry, step back and say, all right, Lord, show me how this person fits with my gifts. 
Show me how they have something that I need in order to grow in my walk with Christ. Just as I, of course, believe that they have something I need. You know, that's the easy one. But Lord, what do they have that I need? God, show me how the gifts all fit together. Show me how the, the thing ministers to one another. And, and I believe you'll be amazed at what you'll realize when you start looking at the other person that way. That the diversity in the body of Christ is not there to drive you crazy. It's there to minister to you and build you up in ways that you couldn't have done by yourself because some assembly is required. Think about uh, these words from... Uh, oh, I didn't even bring them with me. Ooh, forgot my illustration. Okay, I have to do it from memory. Uh, Joseph Stoll, in his book, uh, Following Christ, tells a story about how the gifts work in the body. And the illustration kind of goes this way. He says, if you're sick in the hospital... <clears throat> The different members of the church will come in and they'll use their gifts to bless you. The person who has the gift of showing mercy will sit down next to you on the bed and simply emote with you. The person who has the spiritual gift of giving will come into the hospital room, will whip out a checkbook and say, okay, what, are there any costs here, anything you need to be covered? And they'll start writing checks to bless you. Someone else will walk into the room from the church and they'll begin arranging flowers and arranging cards. And they won't say anything to you. That person has the spiritual gift of administration. The person who has the spiritual gift of teaching will walk into that hospital room and they'll immediately begin telling you everything they know about what the Bible has to say about illness and healing and sickness. Uh, the person who's a prophet will come into your room and remind you that, you know, sometimes sin is associated with sickness. Is there something you need to repent of? <laughs> and the point is, we need all of these different people in the body of Christ to come and minister to us. The diversity of gifts in the body of Christ were not given to annoy us, to frustrate us, and to vex us. The gifts in the body of Christ were given because Christ in his sovereignty has distributed them among the body so that working together, the whole might be built up. You know, our purpose at South Shore Baptist Church, the reason we exist is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this church is here on this street. We are here to glorify Christ. That's why you exist in this world, is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we glorify Christ by singing with this wonderful music, clapping our hands and praising the Lord in song. But you know another way we glorify Christ? Is by exercising the gifts he's given us. We glorify the giver by rejoicing in the gifts. We honor the giver by honoring the gifts. And so as we minister to one another and see the unity through the diversity, Christ is glorified in his church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for how down through the years as a Christian, so many different people have ministered to me. Lord, people with the gift of service have been such an incredible challenge and role model to me about what it means to serve. People with the gift of encouragement and, and mercy have lifted me up at different times. People with the gift of prayer have prayed for me. God, people with the gift of um, uh, prophecy and, and exhortation have given me that, that nudge I need sometimes to go right in the right direction. And God, I thank you for all the variety of gifts that you have given to the body. And I thank you, Lord, that all of us here have been built up. And so, God, I pray that South Shore Baptist Church would glorify you as each of us here commit our lives to one another and use the gifts you've given us to build up the whole body. God, I pray that this would be a place of dynamic energy 
not because of anything we are, but because of what you've given to the church. And Lord, as we operate the gifts in the church, I pray that, that Christ would be glorified. I pray that that risen, conquering Christ would be shown for his greatness. As we uh, put on display the spoils of war for all to see, everyone would realize what an awesome Christ it is that we serve. And so God, unify this church, mature this church. Lord, if there's anything lacking in this church, pour out extra grace and gifts, or bring in someone new from out of town who needs to bring in an extra gift that we don't have. God, I pray, make us a mature and unified body so that you might be well-pleased with us, so that we might glorify Christ. God, I pray if there's any jealousy in our hearts, if there's any envy, if there's any competition and strife, Lord, we repent of it. And we ask instead that you might fill our hearts up with thankfulness that you've given so many gifts to this church. God, I pray, humble us. Help us to see that the gifts are not a reflection of us, but that they're about you and about serving others. Lord, work in this church. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.